feel that pressure. Read it and think about it. This selection we're looking at this week is from verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. And that's the idea that Andy was pointing out that this, this needs to go forward from one generation to the next. I'm going to talk about the blessings that we have as believers in Christ. Don't miss it. Your children have a special blessing to be able to hear God's word and to see it lived out in the life of believers. I've already experienced that anecdotally as, as my children are now virtually adults, all of them. They have been very blessed to hear God's word and to be with God's people. This is a great blessing from the Lord. We should cherish it, and we do pray continually for you and your children. This morning we're going to have, I call it Holy Communion. It's a time in which we separate and take time to think about the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. If you're visiting with us, this is open communion. You don't need to be a member of this church in particular, but you do need to be a member of the body of Christ, someone who has repented and confessed their sin and are obedient to Christ. I'm going to give you a moment to pray privately where you're at to confess your sin and prepare. As the Gospels in Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says that you should examine yourself before you partake of the Lord's Supper. This is not a grace that is given to you, but this is a remembrance of grace. It may be a significant time for you. When Blake comes up here to lead here in 404 in your hymn book, you might want to go ahead and prepare and turn to be prepared when I finish praying. 404, we'll do the first three seated. That'll get you a time to think through the words in this hymn about who Christ is and what he has done as you sing. When we finish the first three, then I will invite you up to, I'll pray to bless the communion and invite you up individually. We'll typically go from this row to this standing and then returning. After we receive communion, then as the hymn in verse 4 indicates, with thankfulness and faith, we rise to respond. It's my prayer that indeed, from the Spirit, you will have greater amount of thankfulness and faith as you receive communion this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to give you just a head start, if you will privately to pray, to prepare your heart to commune with Christ this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. O Father, it is only in Christ that this is fulfilled. We are thankful that in Christ we have indeed been forgiven of all our iniquities. You have laid that on him. He has suffered and died and paid for all our sins. And what a great blessing it is to us and we respond in great blessing to you and great praises. It is only through Christ that indeed all our, our diseases are healed temporarily in this life, those that are healed, but ultimately in a glorified state, in absolute perfect body, to live eternally and commune with you. We're thankful for the redemption that is indeed in Christ our Lord. And that would be enough to spare us from judgment for which we deserve. But Father, then to go beyond that and, and crown us, if you will, with your faithful love that endures, that will never end. I pray that we would recognize that in deeper ways, that we would know that there is nothing that surpasses the love of God in Christ Jesus granted to us. And your mercy, which is new every day. I pray, Father, that indeed we would be satisfied in you. And so many things take our attention away from this great truth. I pray our dissatisfaction with whatever it might be would be taken away as we do this in remembrance of Christ. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's sing the communion hymn together, 404. Remain seated, those first three verses. And let's sit and think about the words as we sing here. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. 404, first three verses.
bless these elements. I'll call this side to rise and receive. When you come to receive, take both the bread and the cup, circle around, return to your seat, and we'll wait to receive this together. Let me bless them now. Father, we're thankful for the blood of Christ, which indeed cleanses from all our iniquity. I pray, Father, that indeed this time in which we contemplate and think on these things, they will bring great remembrance to your people as we commune with Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Your rise on this side here and come and receive. Two elements that we receive, the bread to remind us of the life of Christ, the perfection that is needed to stand before God. You only stand before him in the holiness 
of Jesus Christ, that cloak of perfect righteousness. Receive this in remembrance of him. Brothers and sisters, you have an accuser of the brethren. Satan would still stand, and though you might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you would still be guilty for what you have done. In Christ, there's no more condemnation because he took it all, died on the cross, and his blood covers all your iniquity. It is on that basis and that basis alone that you will be forgiven. Jesus paid it all. Receive this in remembrance of him. Thankfulness and faith we rise to respond. 404, verse 4. <clears throat> Number three, worthy of worship. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 145.
sing Holy, 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 number 68. Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, Revelation 4, 8, number 68, all four verses. Good morning, church. Good morning, If you were wanting to develop the greatest hymn of praise to God, what would you want to do? You'd want to take perhaps the greatest composer. Let's go with George Frederick Handel. And the greatest hymn writer. 
uh, Isaac Watts. And then we would want an exalted uh, passage of scripture of praise to God. And Psalm 98, which we'll be reading this morning, would be a good candidate for that. And we could call the hymn, Joy to the World. Uh, in your pew Bibles, you'll find Psalms 98 and 99, which we'll be reading this morning on page 500. Warren Wearsby said of Psalm 98, of this psalm, Isaac Watts found the inspiration for his popular hymn, Joy to the World, often classified as a Christmas carol, but more accurately identified as a kingdom hymn. Watts described Christ's second advent and not his first, the messianic kingdom and not the manger. The parallels to 96, that is Psalm 96, are obvious, but the psalms are not identical. This psalm was written to praise the Lord for a great victory over Israel's enemies. Perhaps the victory of the Medes and Persians over Babylon, Daniel 5, that led to the return of the Jewish exiles to their land in Ezra 1. Some of the vocabulary in this psalm reflects the language of Isaiah the prophet, who in chapters 40 to 66 of his book wrote about the exodus of the Jews from Babylon. But the psalm also speaks of a future judgment. The psalmist saw in the destruction of ancient Babylon a picture of God's judgment of end-time Babylon. Let us hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> a song. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. John MacArthur says of Psalm 99, the theme of this Psalm is summed up in its last phrase, the Lord our God is holy. The Psalmist encourages praise to the King of his holiness for his holiness, which is the utter separateness of God's being from all other creatures and things, as well as his moral separateness from sin. The psalmist also exults in the truth that such a holy God has had an intimate saving relationship with Israel throughout her history. Verses one through five represent the exaltation of the king's holiness and verses six through nine, examples of the king's holiness. Let us again reverently listen to God's holy word. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, 
He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Amen. Now let us look to the Lord in prayer. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. O you whose name alone is Jehovah and who is the most high over all the earth. O God, you are our God. Early will we seek you. Our God, we will praise you. Our Father's God, we will exalt you. O you who are the true God, the living God, the only living and true God, and the everlasting King, the Lord our God, who is one Lord, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. You are light, and in you is no darkness at all. You are love, and they that dwell in love dwell in God, and God in them. You are the Father of light, with whom is no variableness or shadow of turning, and from whom proceeds every good and perfect gift. You are blessed. You are the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no one can approach, whom no one has seen or can see. We thank you for the privilege of meeting here. Thank you also that you have blessed us in so many ways, both materially and spiritually. We thank you that our nation is at peace, and we would pray that those in Ukraine suffering from the ravages of war might soon see that come to a just end. Draw near to us now then, meet with us, and be glorified in our midst as we pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus, amen. amen.
enjoy this song. Such great principles and thoughts about Christ-likeness in all three verses. So think about that as we sing the servant song together. 384, let's all stand together. We are travelers on a singing of your strings. I always love to meditate and think during those times, and it's very helpful to do that. I can see how Saul was soothed by David's harp. This morning, I want to return to the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 20. And I have at least one more thing to say about this section from Thomas, and hopefully I'll be able to squeeze the content in today. For some reason I can't. There's always next week, but we'll see what we can do. Simple theme this morning is what Christ said In verse 29 of chapter 20, (coughs) blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus asks Thomas a question preceding that and then proclaims this phrase, which is a blessing. 
I think it would be helpful for us to look at this a little closer. If you remember the theme of John's Gospel, which we've emphasized a lot, and as you read through John's Gospel, I think it's helpful to carry this next section, verse 30 through 31, with you in your mind, and I've repeated it many times, but it's worth repeating about what was actually recorded in this book, why you have what is actually said in this book, because a lot of things could be said, but what is actually said here is written, verse 31, so that you would believe. Believe what? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is the most important thing to know, to understand, and to believe. Because by believing, then you are going to have life in his name. That life that is in his name corresponds to this blessing that he grants. Blessed are those who believe. We'll unpack that in a bit. Your belief in Jesus Christ is the most critical reality in the world. There's a lot of things that are important. There's a lot of things that matter. There, I can't think of much or anything that is more important to this that you would believe. You have a lot of responsibilities. You need to be good stewards of that. You may have many burdens that are some overwhelming you. You may also enjoy great and exciting and wonderful things that you look forward to. We have great spectrum of emotions, opportunities, and experiences in this life. Oftentimes, those kinds of things, whether they're good or bad or even neutral, they have a tendency to overwhelm us, distract us, if you will, from what is most important, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ, that you indeed would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because you know why? Blessed are those who believe. As I mature in Christ, not just my age, but as I grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, you know, you learn so much more each passing year, and you, you experience so much more. I used to be a bit agitated and irritated at, un, at certain unbelievers, particularly those in great opposition to the truth. But as I age, I have great empathy and sorrow for them when I see someone in rebellion against God. I know what they're missing. It isn't just that they are actually receiving a judgment in this life for their activity, which is just pitiful to see what they bring on themselves. And then ultimately, in eternal judgment. Someone told me once of someone that I 
No, it was rebellion against Christ, and their body was cremated and put up on a shelf. And they said, there, there's mom right there. So that's not your mother. I, I, I didn't want to, I had empathy and sorrow because they don't understand. I didn't want to tell them, no, that person is receiving eternal judgment. And they had great judgment all of their life, and now they're just going to more judgment. That is not a blessed life. And that is not a blessing. As Andy pointed out this morning, it's appointed and a man wants to die. And after that is the judgment. They're missing out on the blessing of life to come, which is more than you could imagine. Whatever you can imagine, it isn't good enough. You don't have the capacity to understand fullness of joy, and pleasures evermore. Your experiences have limited those by what you see in it. What you have to have is faith, that is to truly believe. It is from the heart. But beyond that, they're missing a blessing right now. A blessing that is more enduring than the temporal ebb and flow of happiness and sadness. Now, my focus is on this verse 29, but to get a running start, I think it's always helpful to put it in some context. Hopefully, you've been reading along and and you've been with us, but I'll just back up a little bit to 24 and finish this out. Look at the text with me and remember the setting. Verse 24 of chapter 20 Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That is the previous Lord's Day. So the other disciples told him, hey, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands, in in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, that's the next Lord's Day, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And here's the key where we're focusing on today, verse 29. And Jesus said to him, This question. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me, seen and yet have believed. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will grant us the significance of the truth of your word. May we hear through this proclamation 
the very words of Jesus Christ that each one of us would need to hear today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I pointed out, you notice that question in verse 29. Jesus is asking Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Question mark. I would say this question here, asked by Jesus, is specific to get Thomas to think. He was a thinker, after all. He wasn't impulsive, like Peter. This is a guy that we've looked at before. He really thought about things and what was going to happen. There is a sense in which, yeah, you could say, well, he believed because he saw Jesus because Jesus actually physically appeared before him. He manifested himself to them. He even invited Thomas to physically inspect his body. But there's another sense in which, really, even with Thomas, the answer is no. It's no, it's no in the sense that it wasn't so much his physical appearance that fundamentally changed his disposition. If you remember in the text, what, what was Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. He believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing he has life in his name. But you know what he didn't do? that he said he was going to do, he was going to physically examine him to the point of not just seeing marks. He actually wanted to stick his finger in it. He wanted to touch it. He wanted to feel it. He wanted this physical presence to be here and be able to touch it. But he didn't do it. He didn't actually touch Jesus at all. He responds to the command of Christ, don't disbelieve, but believe. And it is by that command, ultimately, that he believes. It isn't really just that Christ appeared before him. It is that he heard the voice of Christ. This proclamation of Christ will be the way in which people come to faith in the future. It will not be normative for Jesus to manifest himself physically in rooms that are locked. We can't expect him to appear metaphysically in a dream or a vision, though that did happen once with the Apostle Paul, we're not sure how that manifestation took place, but he did see the risen Christ. And I know there are a lot of folks that will claim some anecdotal account about either some sort of manifestation of Christ, whether physically or most notably in some sort of dream. You'll read recently some folks from the, uh, from, that are Muslim that have some incredible testimonies about 
seeing Christ in some sort of vision or dream, and then that brings them to Christ. We can't rely on that. And in fact, ultimately, that is not why people believe. I'm going to argue, and we'll look at the text further, but the reason people believe is because of a supernatural regeneration of the heart. They may be confused about circumstances related to that, but note, it isn't that you would just... If this is how people came to faith, all Christ would need to do, and he's pretty good at this, and I would imagine pretty fast if he could just appear. Why doesn't he just appear here physically, and then we can all believe, right? Wouldn't you believe if, you, if, if Christ all of a sudden physically manifested himself? The answer is no, you wouldn't. Jesus said if someone rises from the dead, they still won't believe. You don't know how wicked and rebellious the heart of man is. It's going to take a supernatural work of regeneration in the heart for people to come to Christ. You may be confused about how and when you come to Christ, but note this, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. If you want to turn there, let me get Peter's take on all of this manifestation. But because what I'm saying is it it really isn't necessary that you would see Christ in a vision or physically. 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is worth noting. Reference later, if you're dealing with this, with somebody you're discipling, for example, or even yourself. Peter, if you remember, is one of these apostles. He was with Christ. He actually viewed the risen Christ. In fact, prior to that, he, was, he recounts a time in this epistle, in chapter 1, in which he witnessed the transfiguration, we call it, of Christ. That is, Christ showed them a glimpse of glory. It is as he pulled back the veil of his incarnation and showed them the deity, they, they fell over. And beyond that, an audible voice comes from heaven. So if anybody has experiences that are worth hanging on to and repeating, it would be Peter. But instead, what Peter directs the people to, because he's taught from Christ to do this, a source in which faith can objectively come from, for which the Holy Spirit uses, and that is the word of God. He was on the holy mountain. He heard all of that. That's the context. Now drop to verse 19 of chapter 1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It's better. What's better? This right here. This is much better. You say, well, I'd like to see a manifestation of Christ, a transfiguration before him, some sort of vision. Guess what? I have something better. It's this right here. You understand? Do you believe? This is why we encourage you to get this out and read it. This is why we encourage you to go through and meditate and even memorize and sing 
This word, this is more fully confirmed. What do you mean more fully confirmed? I can tell you about an anecdote that I had, but it's not replicable, right? Who would know if I, if I was just crazy or if I just had, you know, an experience, I thought it was one thing and it's really something else. Don't rely on my dream. Don't rely on my experience. Look to Christ in his word. He says, which you will do well to pay attention. That's where you want to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place. There's much darkness, much misunderstanding and confusion. You want the light? Look in his word. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. This is meeting Christ. You're going to meet him in your word. And this is just a a beautiful way to explain it. It is as if you you ever been out and see the dawn in the early morning, the beautiful colors in the sky, and it, it just gives you a sense of joy in the beauty of it. Well, that's what it is when the dawn arises, if you will, in your very heart. He goes on, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, this is not a recounting of a bunch of anecdotal experiences, right? These are people that just wrote something down that happened, This isn't from their own thoughts. And see, even if people are well-intentioned and they give their own thoughts about all their various experiences, that just comes from them. How how do you know if it's true? Where would it be verified? I'll tell you where it would be verified. In the prophetic word, more fully confirmed. This is confirmed. This is true. This other stuff, okay, it might have happened. That might have been some reality. But this is what you need to pay attention to. Not that. That's what he's getting at. For no, and he explains how this came about, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. This is what you can know for sure. This is not produced by the will of man. But instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They wrote their words, but we call them inspired in the sense that the Holy Spirit directed them from their own personalities, but it didn't come solely from their own mind in that sense. Their minds were directed by the Holy Spirit in his confirmed word. By the way, this is why we don't preach ecstatic utterances here. And act like a bunch of fools. This is why we don't run around and extol anecdotal experiences. We preach the word of Christ. That's who you need to hear. It is objective. And you can take it and look it up. And read it. And read it. And read it. And Dawn will dawn in your heart. Belief is going to then be brought about not by seeing some sort of physical manifestation of Christ, 
or some sort of metaphysical appearance of Christ in any form. You know how it's going to come about? Just simply by the foolishness of preaching. How would that accomplish anything? This is what Christ has ordained. He would teach these apostles to go forward and not go around telling them all about their experiences per se. Sure, we have them there, but then ultimately point to the words of Christ. People will hear the words of Christ and respond in faith. We are called, beloved, to follow in those very footsteps and simply do this. Preach the word. Not experiences. Not private communication. Oh, well, God told me this. You know what? Okay. God may or may not, but how would I know? And what does it matter? This is confirmed. This is the authority. Go to that. That's what we mean by sola scriptura. It is the only authoritative source. I mean, I'm not going to argue with that. May or may not happen, whatever your experiences are, but be sure to, to bind them to the words of Christ. Jesus asked Thomas, well, do you believe because you saw? I think Jesus, in addition, is trying to get him to think about this very idea and know the reality that believers, him and those that will follow, walk by faith not by sight. You've heard that before? That's Paul telling the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. That is, you, you, you live by this belief. It, it isn't that the facts aren't there. Jesus has the factual evidence in his hands and the factual evidence in his side. All the facts line up with every single word, but that's not what we preach. We don't preach all these facts. Go ahead, and we do mention them, and hopefully they'll be supportive. They're, they're, They're not in disagreement, but you're going to walk by a supernatural work of God's grace in your heart. It's called faith. Faith is the response of belief. Thomas makes that very clear when Jesus puts him up and lets him examine the facts, condescends to him, as we've mentioned before, really, in great humility. Can you imagine this? This is the God incarnate, the Lord of glory. What else could he have done? Thomas was with them all the time. He, he saw all of this. In fact, you remember, Thomas saw Lazarus raised from the dead. He knows who Jesus Christ is. All of a sudden, it hits him. His profession of faith. You know his profession of faith here is in the text? Verse 28, my Lord and my God. What's your profession of faith? Jesus is Lord. 
And that profession is going to come deep within your soul where you truly believe. I'm not suggesting that your belief can't grow. You will mature. You'll grow. But there will be a spark of it where you just say, well, with whatever I have here, I know one thing. Jesus is God, and he is my Lord. Thomas had made an ignorant statement. He's corrected here. He says he will not believe unless he touches, and yet he believes, doesn't he? It's a response to the supernatural work of God in his heart, not the result of an intellectual analysis. Faith, belief, is more profound than we can imagine. There are some who press the issue because they have, I think, good motives. They want everybody to believe. I think I had mentioned something like that last week. I wish I had the gift to make everybody believe. I would. It's a great grief to me to see unbelievers. The people who made some sort of profession and walked away because it wasn't genuine. It brings great grief, but faith is much more profound than you just agreeing with some facts, which happen to be true. Faith, and you could turn and mark it down. I'll, I'll just quote these, and yeah, we're going to have to come back to this next week, so I'll try not to bury you. But I want you to know at least two things about faith from the scripture. The first one is found in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And you can turn there. We're just going to look at that, ver- that passage. Know where it is. It's helpful sometimes to look with your eyes at this word. And many of you have memorized this passage, haven't you? At least you're familiar with it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. All right, that's how salvation comes, through faith. Explaining this faith, all right, I have to have faith, or you can use belief, either one. It's not of your own doing. It isn't a matter of you just all of a sudden changing your mind about it from considering all the plausible realities. Somebody would be a fool not to, and they are described that way, not to believe, but it's not of your own doing. It is, do you see the text? It is a gift of God. That's what I'm talking about. That's what the word grace means, right? It's, it's a gift, unmerited favor. It's granted to you by God. And, and even if you have a hard time wrapping your mind about it, I'm just asking you to compare that to what actually God's word says. It is a gift of God. It's that simple. It is much more profound. God has a gift, and he gives it to you. And to make it more explicit, in verse 9... He says, it isn't the result of works. 
It isn't what you do. Because if it was, look here, so that no one may boast, you'd have something to take merit or credit. This is why we talk about unmerited. That is, it isn't a result of what you do. Essentially, there, there are two religions. Grace, the gift of God, and everything else. If you examine all of these other world religions, they have you do something. Right? It all ultimately depends on you. You make the right choice. You make the right, right decision. Now, we do call for you to make the right choice and right decision, but we recognize if you do, then that is an expression of God's gift to you, not because you made a better choice than your neighbor, your friend, or whoever. This is with a profundity of grace. And if you have received grace, if you really truly believe, you understand you have a precious gift given to you. Can I call that a blessing? Right? Do you understand how blessed you are? What greater gift can you have? Now, I enjoy gifts. I like getting things. I like giving things. But I can't give this. This comes from God, and there is nothing better. And if you have nothing else but this, you have it all. It's called an indescribable gift. Read the first part of Ephesians. I would love to do that, but it would take us all day. Because I wouldn't stop carrying on about it. You've been slighted of something? Of something that you deserved or you should have merited or earned? Well, guess what? I didn't merit any of this, and that's what I've got, and it's better than whatever anybody else can get. They can gather together all the riches in the world, and it won't compare because my soul is not lost. Not because of my own doing, then I would brag about it. I'm just hanging out, and God gives me a gift. And it is absolutely precious. The second thing, and it just follows on this, not only is a gift, and I kind of alluded to it here, but in, um, I'll just read this section for you. In 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul is talking about, to Timothy, his protege, of correcting opponents. And we have to do that because they're opposing what Christ has taught. So we oppose them. He says to do it with gentleness. Of course you're going to be gentle because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. It's sad in a way. But you do that, you correct them for what purpose? He says in 2 Timothy 2.25, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. This is granted by God. Faith is more profound than you can understand. It's a gift of God, and this repentance that would lead to this knowledge of truth, where you would then apprehend it, there you would know it. It is comes from God. It is his grant, which is similar to this idea 
of gift. The result is a supernatural belief in God. Faith, we call it. Faith, belief. And if you have it, then it's expressed this way. The preacher of Hebrews would say it this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Do you have assurance of these things that are hoped for? You haven't seen any. Do you have a conviction for that? It is granted by God. It is a gift to him. Let's turn to Jesus' response to this question, rhetorical in some regard, and I'll introduce and finish this up next time. Jesus simply then responds to Thomas by saying, Blessed are those who have not seen, note the connection, and yet believed. This is the state of those who believe. What's the state? They're blessed. Jesus is pointing to a future when, in this immediate context, he's going, to send to the fa- he's going to ascend to the Father and leave the disciples to go around preaching the word. Many then will hear their preaching, come to faith in Christ, and join that blessed state without having the benefit of personally seeing Jesus, yet they will be specifically blessed, blessed as much as Thomas in this context, or any of those who witnessed a manifestation of Christ in those 40 days post-resurrection. What is this blessed state? It is a state of redemption. I'll read a couple passages for you, and then I want you to go to our, our apostle Peter once more, since I think I left you off there. We'll drop back to verse 3, 1 Peter 1, 3. But let me give you some introductory This word blessed that's mentioned here, it is a word that means happy. That's true. But in this context, it's it's more than just happy in a superficial sense. In this context, this blessedness describes someone who is acceptable before a holy God. Beloved, that's a blessed state. To be acceptable before a holy God. You understand all the religions of the world want to try to, who who do believe in some idea of God, they want to be acceptable before him, so they do all kinds of things to be acceptable. But as we already said, this is a gift of God. This is granted by God. But that state is blessed in the sense you are acceptable right now. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. 
that's the blessed state. Whose sin is covered. This is talking about the propitiation. This is what all of the Old Testament pointed to of the slaughter of the lambs, if you will, to cover and to propitiate and to pay for sin. It was a symbol that pointed to this very one Christ. What's that blessed state like? Psalm 32, 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Okay, in my spirit, I have a lot of deceit, which I didn't, but I do. Who's, how does that come about? We know. We know the rest of the story, don't we? Because that iniquity, is, it's not counted against me. It was accounted against Christ. He died on the cross. That's what we receive this communion to remember. And it puts us then in a, in a state of blessedness before God. Our sins are forgiven. Paul would teach this as he's talking about salvation in the book of Romans. And he elaborates on this idea. Blessed are those in Romans 4, 7. I wanted to note it. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That's the blessed state. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Can you be more blessed than that? The wages of sin we know is death. We see the evidence of it even in this physical life, right? It death and disease, but he doesn't count it because he has transferred it to Christ. Now here, we'll look at 1 Peter 1, and I'll have to wrap this up in just a few minutes. Bear with me. But this is worth you noting, looking at, and meditating on in connection with this idea of a blessed state. And here's what I'd ask you even to examine your own heart. Are you that blessed man? And how would you know? I'm going to show you here in a minute. Peter begins in verse, we'll drop the first three of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Again, the idea is how, how are you going to be born again? Well, it's God's work. It is granted. This is what he does. Born again. Born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. And here's what I was talking about, the blessed state of the believer, to an inheritance that is different than anything that you could ever acquire or imagine on this side of eternity to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Wouldn't you like to have a great inheritance? Get it. It's going to be gone, and somebody else is going to get it. And I'm not suggesting don't work hard, don't acquire resources or whatever you want to do. It's just don't put your heart on that. There's something better for the blessed man. And if all that's taken away, you're like, Job, yet he slay me. I will worship him. How are you going to worship God when you lose everything? Because you haven't lost anything. 
Have you? It's imperishable. It's unfading. It will never go away. Now don't you feel sorry for those people who invest all of their life into, into something temporal that will fade away anyway? When some crazy despot comes along and just starts throwing missiles at all your stuff? Put your trust in stuff. Put it in God. Much better and blessed here, who's by God's power are guarded through faith. There's the word. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is where it ends. No destination and keep that in mind. And so what is your response? Verse 6. Well, in this you rejoice. Though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I understand that. It's hard. But put your hope into what is the end of the story. You know what is the end of the story. And by Doing so, it proves, verse 7, that the te- it tests the genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. May be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I said that all to set up this one phrase. You ready for it? Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. This is how you prove the genuineness of your faith. Not that you would see him, get some sort of vision, some sort of private experience. You haven't seen him. But there's something deep within you where you say, I love Jesus Christ. Even if it's in an infantile state and you don't understand all of the implications of it, this is the genuine expression of your heart. When I talk with my own kids and other little kids, we preach all this truth to them. And if they grow up in a Christian home, they'll pretty much respond to what you tell them, and they'll believe it. But it needs to go beyond that, where it's actually an expression of your own heart, where you love Jesus Christ, where that is the expression of your heart. It is you rejoice with joy that is then inexpressible. And one way to put more concrete to that than just a, an emotional response, Jesus explained in John 14, 15, then, and this is how you can examine your heart. If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. It is obedience from the heart. It's not an obedience from 
a list of requirements to make you right before God. It, it, it isn't a list in which, oh, well, you've got to do this or you're going to be out. It, it does bring about, that is, the regeneration of the heart, it will bring about an obedience, but it's from the heart. It's from the love of Christ. And, and you, you don't want to displease him. That is the driving force. And when you recognize that you, you haven't measured up, that you have sinned, it is the love of Christ then that would compel us daily to confess our sin and knowing that he will forgive you because he is faithful and because he is just and because he's promised that. Beloved, you couldn't, if you're in Christ, you couldn't be more blessed. Psalm 1 talks about that and it ends with this, but the wicked are not so. They're going to receive judgment, not only in this life, may not look like it, but they are, and then in the life to come. The state of the believer is more glorious than you can imagine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that you have blessed us in Christ Jesus. I pray that our faith would be encouraged for those who truly believe and for those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. I pray that you would grant it even now. I pray the gift of faith for all of us then would be a great treasure that we would value above anything else. And may we respond in joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I'm going to give you a moment to think on these things privately before we close. Take a moment, respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you. Take a moment now. Father, I pray that you would grant to us great joy and great peace in Christ.
regardless of our situation, may the blessedness of those who believe redound even more in days ahead. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close with a hymn, 250, if you'll stand, written by Charles Wesley. And can it be? Can you imagine? That was a thought in Wesley's mind. Let's stand and sing together. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's May the Lord deal bountifully with you and open your eyes to see the wonderful things from his word. May his word be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. May you treasure his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. May you observe the testimonies of the Lord and delight in his ways more than riches. May the Lord give you the understanding to keep his commands and observe them with your whole heart. May the Lord give you life according to his steadfast love and hope in his salvation forever. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.